Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Jonathan Butcher. He is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you. So you wrote an article just recently, and it's uh, Don't Reform Higher Education, Rebuild It. And, you know, anybody who's paying any attention to what's going on at colleges and universities uh, would definitely embrace this article that you put together. And if you haven't followed it, then you definitely need to read the article. But early on in the article, you mentioned the rot is palpable. And I think that was probably as just a statement as you could have made. Well, thank you. I mean, look, I think what uh, parents today want is to send their children off to college to get them prepared to be productive in the workforce, to be civic uh, participating members in society, and to have the skills that they need you know, to be successful in their careers and in life. I think what we are finding more and more today is that it's not just isolated headlines about a shout down or some violent activity on campus. It is happening regularly and the very um, activities and organization of universities have uh, changed pretty dramatically over the last 30 years. Uh, One of my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation found that among the Power Five athletic conferences, the schools, and so we're talking about the big football schools, right? Michigan, Ohio State, schools like that. They have uh, on average about uh, nearly 50 uh, staff committed to so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on campus. So, I mean, they're hiring staff for the sole purpose of pushing a a radical leftist agenda. Well, and you mentioned, you know, again early on in the article, right? Really, the bloat on the on the admin side of a university, right? Everybody knows the cost of going to college just keeps going up and up and up. Because their overhead, as you just mentioned, keeps going up and up and up. With people who have nothing to do with education, they're more worried about indoctrination than education. Well, sure. I mean, not only is administrative bloat a problem, and and has been for many years, uh, the number of administrators in higher education has increased um, also very, very dramatically. But it's also this issue of having Washington underwrite student loans. Uh, this, This really escalated under President Obama's time in office. And, you know, we're, we now have the Biden administration talking about perhaps forgiving student loans. Now, there are any number of negative consequences, right, of uh, sort of um, um, byproducts, right, of forgiving student loans, not the least of which is that if you say, well, look, we're just going to um, say that Students, you know, don't have to repay uh, what what they took out to to cover their college tuition costs. Then there's no incentive for universities to lower tuition, right? I mean, there's no incentive for a school to lower its tuition prices, its sticker prices, if uh, Washington is simply going to bail out students. And um, so that's that is one of the things that is. And this is actually it's this is not just a talking point. I mean, this has been demonstrated by uh, research from the, the federal. Um, uh, Federal Reserve, for example. I mean, we've had um, you know pretty pretty significant uh, research back up uh, this finding that every time Washington says it's going to contribute more to higher ed loans, the price of tuition goes up. 
We just saw that with uh, this new inflation act that went in, right? I don't know if you just saw, but the other day, you know, there's like a $7,500 or so rebate if you buy an electric car. Well, every car manufacturer just raised their prices within the last few days, $7,500 because of the rebate the government's given people to buy those cars. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about with education. Yeah, politicians regularly demonstrate how little they know about economics just about every time they go to vote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, it is crazy. And, you know, whether it, you know, it's the student loan fiasco that they're talking about, it's the the bloated admin. But, you know, you kind of mentioned it before, right, all these problems going on campus, you know, free speech. It really is, you know, a place where people who want to get an education, an unbiased education, it's almost hard to find a place to get that now, isn't it? Well, that's right. And, and this is why I, I felt, you know, I needed to write, um, to, to write this piece. And because uh, there are those out there today, both in the um, sort of the world of, of commentators and, and op-ed writers and thinkers and, and you know, even academics, as well as in the business world, who want to change this. And it's not just, as you know, the title says, it's not just reforming existing schools, but it's creating things from scratch and saying, look, we're going we're gonna to do this all over again. And, uh, and there were a couple of really fascinating examples I, I found. One, and, and one that's made uh, the news over the past uh, six, eight months, is the University of Austin. And this was started by, among others, um, Glenn Lowry, who's a professor up at Brown and an outspoken free speech advocate and an opponent to the, the racial ideology that's been um, uh, being pushed by the radical left uh, over the last, you know, 20 plus years, as well as Barry Weiss, who, who left the New York Times uh, pretty publicly after feeling as though free speech had died at that at that newspaper, as well as a number of others. And, and the fascinating thing was when they said, look, we're going to start a university based on the idea that that we need open debate, that we need students to be able to speak their minds and to feel free to do so. According to um, uh, the founders of the school, they said thousands of professors uh, came out of the woodwork, even those who had tenure, saying that they wanted to be a part of the project. And uh, and that I found that to be pretty remarkable, as well as their fundraising was pretty strong uh, just in the first few months. Uh, so that was that was one example, and I felt that there were others, and I I, I did find find more. Yeah, and you did. You did a good job in that article, kind of saying what these opportunities are, because you know we've looked at it. You know, even if you look at it from the perspective of the Catholic Church, right? Seminaries that had the rot that you're talking about, and were teaching bad theology, you can't fix them. And even in Denver, what they ended up having to do was shut it down, let it die, and then start it over again. Because to try to fix something that's so rotten is is almost impossible. So, and I think what you're talking about is to is to see other opportunities pop up. Because to fix something within some of these larger universities, uh, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's going to be really hard and take a long time. And people don't have that kind of time. Yeah, and establishing something new means that you don't have to work against the existing roots that were there, right? You don't have to work against a system that had uh, often been in place for a long, long time. Um, and so, you know, I, I talked to a, a business leader in North Carolina named uh, Bob Luddy, who had st- started some private schools, uh, a network of private schools, 
and uh, felt like he could do something similar with uh, with higher education. So he started uh, Thales College uh, with the idea that he could provide a low-cost education. So we're talking about four thousand uh, dollars or so, and then uh, for a you know for a, for a year, and then a uh, offer degrees and um, uh, have students work part time as well, so they gain. Um, experience in the workforce while they're taking classes um, and, and really, you know, create something that was, you know, it's designed to do what, what families and students going to college want, right? Which is not the uh, preoccupation with identity politics, not the preoccupation with diversity, equity, inclusion, um, but a focus on learning the skills they need to be successful when they graduate. Well, and, and universities that have bought into the lie and that are doing all the things that they're doing, Right. And until the money, the bloodline gets cut off, they're not going to make any changes. And the only way that's going to happen is if there are alternatives where people will spend their money and their time so that these places just don't have the students and they will die on the vine because they haven't adapted to what people really want. Right. Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, as we look at student surveys from around the country, uh, increasingly, we see that students are are afraid to speak up. They're afraid to speak their minds. And um, uh, we, you know, we watched this really over the last, I mean, gosh, five years in particular. I think we've seen more and more surveys about how students um, are are uh, holding back both in the classroom as well as outside the classroom. Um, and, you know, what's fascinating, so in in my book, uh, which came out this year, Splintered Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth, I, um, I looked at uh, what happened around 2010, 2015, uh, really a bunch of, of colleges, mostly liberal arts schools, released these equity demands. I mean, they wrote letters to their administration saying that they needed to hire more professors based on skin color, they needed to provide more benefits to minority students at the school. I mean, all of these different demands based around the color of the student instead of a student's needs or, um, you know, a student's um, mm-hmm. uh, achievements in the classroom and, and those kinds of things. And that it was remarkable that there were so many. I mean, we're talking 80 some schools had these very similar um, uh, statements that came out. And so when all of that happens at once, it feels like a wave, right? It feels like a movement. And I think that's why the surveys are, are giving us the results that, that they are, showing that, that students are now fearful that if they speak out, they're going to be canceled. Well, we see that, you know, and, you know, it's, I don't know if you ever follow uh, Professor Robert George out of Princeton is a big advocate of free speech and is, you know, active on social media, encouraging universities and, and professors to speak to free speech and he'll call people out, but you're right. I mean, it it is a place where people try to hide just to kind of get by. And it, it, you know, you're paying a lot of money to not be able to say what you think and to try to fend off the indoctrination that unfortunately a lot of kids going to college fall to, don't they? Well, that's right. And he's uh, fortunately on our uh, board of trustees at the heritage foundation. I'm very pleased to have him and, um, you know, there are, there are others, uh, you know, like him. And I think the example that many point to is Hillsdale College, um, you know, up in Michigan, which has um, not only, uh, you know, not they don't accept 
federal, you know, federal money, federal loans. Um, they've uh, committed, uh, you know, much of their curriculum to the cl- classic works of the Western canon. Uh, they've even started a network of charter schools. Um, and, you know, there are others that, that come to mind, too, are uh, Jordan Peterson, of course, who made quite a name for himself um, for his um, commitment to free speech as a professor up at the University of Toronto. And, by the way, is, is someone I mentioned in my piece because he's the chancellor of Ralston College in Savannah, which is another one of these relatively new um, colleges that are, you know, committed to the original purposes, right, of of uh, of the academy, which is, you know, the pursuit of truth. Well, and, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't know if anybody out there listening has ever, li- you know, seen the Ben Stein documentary expelled and what's been happening in, in the science departments, you know, trying to, uh, you know, abolish the thought that maybe God created this world in which we live and how professors were being booted right and left. So what you're talking about isn't necessarily new. It's just picked up more and more speed. And with this DEI and critical race theory and all these things going around, um, everybody's getting a target on their back if they even think or they find something that somebody had written years ago. They're, they become a target, don't they? Absolutely. And I mean, look, a documentary that'll really um, um, uh, scare and should terrify parents. It's it's free on YouTube and it's in three parts about Evergreen State uh, University up in Washington State. And now this was a school that was designed, I mean, years ago, I mean, 50, 60 years ago as an experimental college. It was meant to be something that at the time was trying to do things different than what uh, universities were doing. And uh, now it has been completely overrun by the radical left. Um, this was, of course, the school where... Professor Brett Weinstein, who was a biology professor himself, and um, the students have a tradition where they said uh, black students would stay home from school for a day to protest um, uh, America's, you know, past of of, of um, Jim Crow and the slavery era yeah. and things like that. Well, they flipped it in 2017 and said, well, we're going to require that white individuals, anyone who's white, not come to campus. And uh, Professor Weinstein said, no, this, this school belongs to me as much as it belongs to anyone else. You can't tell me to stay off campus. And he was, uh, you know, chased out of his class and he eventually had to go into hiding and, and had uh, police protection. Um, the, the president of the college was kept held hostage in his office, you know, for a period of time. He wasn't allowed to use the bathroom. I mean, the campus was just overrun and they had to postpone graduation. I mean, it was just just a royal mess. The the interesting thing is that shortly before all of this took place, the author of White Fragility, um, Robin D'Angelo, gave a a lecture on campus and was promoting uh, her ideas of, of America, you know, being built on um, uh, systemic racism and that white individuals are forever guilty of oppression and, uh, and, and really sowing just seeds of hatred and discord. And so I, I don't think that it's just a coincidence that, um, you know, we saw such a, uh, such a meltdown on campus shortly after that kind of, that kind of message was delivered. Well, and, you know, you, you, your talk about what's going on with higher education, I know you follow education across the board, but if we just look at what's going on in public schools, I think it was, uh, I think it was Minnesota just the other day, 
school board said that if anybody has to get laid off or fired, it's going to be white teachers first. Um, we really are seeing, you know, this this rot even in our elementary and secondary education. But parents are fighting back, aren't they? They certainly are. And look, when you see an example like that from Minneapolis, every time somebody says, look, critical race theory is not taught in schools, you can just lay out example after example of how critical race theory is not only um, a part of school curriculum, but it is a part of school operations. And what happened in Minneapolis was that the teacher union and the school, uh, the school system, the, the district, agreed on a teacher contract that said that when teachers had to be lay- laid off, they would be laid off according to race first. And so white individuals would be laid off first. And that is a blatant violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Um, so, you know, it's that example. It's the mandatory racial affinity groups in Wellesley, Massachusetts, that actually the the district settled with a parent ag- advocacy organization that sued them because of these racial affinity groups. Uh, it's the statement by the Hayward Unified School District across the Bay in San Francisco um, that said that uh, critical race theory would be included in the school curriculum. They, they put that in a memo that they released to the, the parents and students and on and on. I mean, we have tons of examples. So, it, but solutions here are what you were referring to. And, uh, and yes, there, there have been, I think, some great examples. I think um, Florida has uh, enacted a provision that says um, effectively no individual should be compelled to affirm any idea that violates the Civil Rights Act. Uh, There have been executive orders from the governors of South Dakota, Virginia, that have said the same. Um, Georgia, as well, has enacted a similar provision. Uh, Mississippi has done this as well. So there there are very strong, I think, movements from state lawmakers to defend civil rights. Well, and and look, the the state of public education right now is, is heading south, and it's heading south in a hurry. And, you know, if parents are going to fight for their kids, and they are, which is great to see, right, they're not going to fight for their kids for 12 years and then send them to an institution that's going to reverse everything they fought against for the first 12 years, right? Parents are going to start saying, I'm not paying and you're not going to these schools unless there are alternatives where you can, you know, where morality is important and being free speech is important. So, I think higher education needs to take notice that these parents, you know, unfortunately labeled as extremists because they care about their kids, aren't going to just let all the work that they're doing now and the work to come go flush right down the toilet when they go to college. And I think that they'll start noticing as students leave. Uh, We've seen a pretty uh, significant decline in uh, assigned public school enrollment over the period of the pandemic. Uh, a report came out just this week that uh, enrollment is down about 2 million students, which is a pretty significant number, uh, all things considered. I mean, you've got 49, 50 million kids in public schools. And so to lose, you know, 2 million is a, it's a pretty serious, serious drop. Um, and the same at higher ed. I mean, uh, college enrollment is also down. And we'll have to keep an eye on that trend to see if it continues. Um, and uh, I think I think that even coming out of the pandemic, the widespread dissatisfaction with the way that uh, both colleges as well as us, uh, traditional district public schools handled 
education um, is, uh, I mean, it's palpable. I mean, we see it in surveys. We see it in parents removing their kids from assigned schools and creating learning pods and choosing private schools and uh, finding other options for them. Well, and rightfully so, because as parents, we are supposed to be the protectors, the main educators, and we may have to make sure that they are being taught what they need to be taught, not indoctrinated. And, you know, to send your kid to college, and I think the average, uh, you know, loan debt that people come out is over $35,000. It takes them 20 years to pay it off. There was an article just recently in the Federalist that said, don't send your kids to college. Now, I don't know that I would say that there are good colleges and things are propping up, but hey, Votech schools. I, I don't know about you, but where I live, trying to find a skilled electrician or plumber or whatever is, I'm not going to say impossible, but you're on a wait list. The, the world needs these skills, trades, and you can come out without any debt and start making money and supporting your family. That's right. And these are uh, jobs that, that uh, earn pretty well, right? That, that, that make a pretty good living. Um, I, I think that the, um, uh, the the shift away from uh, finding what is best for a student when they finish school and pushing every child to go to college uh, has, I, I think, been been overdone for about the past 30 years, really. I mean, I think that it was started with good intentions to say, hey, look, every child should have the opportunity to go to college if they want it. And that's true. But to say that every child should go to college has created this great student loan um, uh, problem that we have right now with so many students with loans as well, uh, or outstanding loans, um, as well as uh, students not finding the right fit, right? Um, I think that we do need to uh, tell students uh, as they move through uh, high school that there are other options than going to a four-year uh, a four-year school. And, I mean, look, the other side of this um, uh, student loan scandal, I mean, the student loan problem is that those who have the highest outstanding loans right now are those in graduate school. And uh, it's those who are going to law school and med school that have um, uh, the, the highest loan amounts, uh, as well as um, those from the higher end of the income spectrum. So the top 10, uh, 10 uh, percent uh, percentile of uh, the income scale have higher loans than those at the bottom, far more. Uh, so there's there's really when we talk about loan forgiveness, it's a a solution that would be helping those at the upper end of the income scale right now. Well, that's always the way it works. And, you know, the taxpayer always foots the bill. And that's that's you and me and everybody else paying for somebody's education that, you know, if they couldn't afford it, then they probably shouldn't have done it to come out and and try to live in this world, a world in which we have a, you know this recession. And think we have that kind of insurmountable debt should scare anybody. And I think you did a good job of really pointing out all these things that are going on. But how can people, you know, and maybe it's just research on the internet, find these alternative schools? How do they how do they find institutions that aren't, you know, rotten from within and and, and be able to get their kids an education without, uh, you know, giving them a tsunami of debt? Well, I think one is uh, there are organizations out there that keep track of both the new schools that are being created as well as the departments at uh, existing colleges and universities that are committed to uh, free speech and committed to academic quality. Uh, one is the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, ACTA. Uh, they have good lists there. 
Uh, I think that uh, as you talk to a college counselor, it'd be worth asking questions like, uh, does this school uh, accept uh, federal money for student loans? Because the few that don't, the schools like Hillsdale uh, at Grove City, at least at one point did not, um, those are schools that um, are going to, um, you know, be committed to, again, providing the experience that, that schools were um, originally intended for uh, and not be afraid that, you know, Washington is going to uh, somehow, um, with, you know, get, get them in trouble for a Title IX violation or something like that. Um, I think that um, parents should be ready to think outside the box. I mean, I think that there are schools that may not have the, um, you know, the names that we all think of all the time, Harvard, Yale, uh, and schools like that, but are um, smaller schools that um, are committed to institutional ideals. And you can, you can tell by the, um, the way they advertise themselves on their website about if they talk about free speech, if they are talking about uh, promoting debate, all of those are things that parents could look for. I mean, look, if a college has a biased response team, it should be an automatic no, right? It should be off the list. Yeah. If the school has a diversity, equity, and inclusion office, same thing. Yeah, there are telltale signs. And, you know, it's, again, you don't, I think to your point, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to find it, but you do have to do some research. And I think parents, you know, care about their kids. As I mentioned before, even in elementary and secondary education, right, they're fighting back, they're going to school boards, they're tired of this. Think all these things that have been thrust upon their kids. So those type of individuals will will spend the time to make sure that their kids are going to a place where they can grow and not again not become you know mutated into this progressive lifestyle. So I think it really does involve work. And it, and how can people follow what you're doing? Because you got your finger on the pulse. You know what's going on. And I think people need to you know, be able to follow reliable sources so that they you know, can make good decisions. Uh, sure. They can find our research at heritage.org. And uh, I'm on Twitter at at JM underscore butcher. Yeah. And again, you've come up with, you know, there's been several different articles and you know, we talked a year and a half ago on critical race theory. So you do have your, your finger on the pulse. And, you know, we do live in a world that Unfortunately, you know, it's the indoctrination of children, and they've done a great job up until this point. If you like the content of these shows that we produce on a weekly basis, please prayerfully consider supporting us. Go to ccdenver.org, click on the donate button, and then click on Respect Life Denver to support this programming. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.